I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. When I'm making wine from those blocks, I really try not to do too much wine making, I guess I can say. It's you want to let the personality of the, the vineyard block speak rather than put a winemaker's stamp on it. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Nick Brown is a fourth generation vigneron at All Saints Estates in the Rutherglen, a true family owned and operated business. Nick joins me to tell me more about working in a tight knit family operation in one of the most important regions of Australia, the Rutherglen. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for making the time. Now, you are actually, uh, well, you herald from an amazing estate um, and grew up in the family winery of Brown Brothers. Tell me a little bit about growing up as you. <laughs> um, well, probably not. it's probably in hindsight it was really lucky growing up in it's such a, a beautiful playground of a, a vineyard and winery but you don't know that at the time I guess um, so you don't appreciate it not until you get older and having kids of my own now I can see that uh, they, they really have a ball running around where they live and um, very fortunate but um, uh, firstly living in the country is a, a, a beautiful experience growing up and uh, having siblings and cousins to, to join the fun is, is, is great as well. I imagine so. I mean, it's not the safest place for kids to really run around in a winery, is it? But uh, what do you remember back of those days? And what's your first memory of, of noticing beverages or noticing kind of wine? I mean, what role did that play? Do you remember a moment where you were like, oh, this is, this is a thing that my family does? <laughs> Um, it wasn't until I was older, but when when we were um, running around the winery in the vineyard, I remember vividly mum telling my sisters and I on the weekends, um, uh, I'll uh, make sure you're home before it's dark. Um, so we'd leave the house in the morning and we, we'd be back right on, on sunset. So it was very brave of uh, mum and dad letting us run around and not seeing us or hearing from us all day. But before there were mobile phones where you could track your kids um, but yeah, it was it was awesome. I wouldn't do that now with my kids, but times have changed. But as far as wine goes, um, I from a very early age, um, my our mum and dad would let us smell and and taste wine uh, over dinner. They always never did that outside of a of of dinner time. Um, so I think it was a really good introduction to being able to appreciate. Um, wine uh but also uh doing that when there was food around it really sort of gave you a respect for wine and where it was um where it had its place and the the sort of ceremony i guess of a family sitting down and enjoying um wine and food with conversation and it really hit home when i went away to boarding school where there was a bit of a um I guess, an excitement from the other boys when they were away from their parents and they were discovering alcohol in general and <laughs> they didn't appreciate um, uh, the, the wine like I did growing up. Yeah, I think it's – I don't know if it's something to do with um, being asked a question or, or, or when your parents say, you you know, put your nose in this and smell this, that you, you just feel a little bit more adult, even if it's just because someone's asking you what do you smell 
you know, it seems like a, a kind of loaded question, but I remember my father doing the same thing and you kind of, it's a, you feel, you know, like you're being taken quite seriously because they're asking you, what can you smell in the glass? Which I think is, is pretty poignant when, when you are quite young. Uh, so what happened in terms of when you decided uh, after, after school, you end up doing a geological engineering course. Is that right? Uh, I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do towards the end of school. There was a, a lot of, um, I guess, pressure from teachers and peer pressure um, from mates in having to decide what, what we should do or just making a decision, basically. And uh, we have a family rule that Dad um, set up years ago that we can't get a full-time job at home until we do four years somewhere else. It can be in wine or it could be in whatever field that we we're interested in. And towards the end of school, I had a few mates that were pretty keen on geological engineering. So I deferred my geological engineering um, de uh, degree at Melbourne Uni and decided to go down to Tasmania and worked in a mine for about five or six months. And that quickly cured me of any faint interest in geological engineering, <laughs> drilling core samples in the middle of an open cut mine in um, freezing temperatures in the northwest of Tassie. So, uh, yeah, that was that was an experience, um, <laughs> which was great to have the experience. But I went on and did various other things, um, traveling and working in other fields uh, after that. I think that that's so fantastic of your parents to say you need to go and do something for four years. I mean, it tends to be, I don't know if it's a, a farming kind of mindset, but, you know, it must be hard for parents when they want to keep you close and they want want you to, you know, hopefully take over the family business one day to say, go and just experience life. I mean, so much foresight in that in in that uh, those instructions, isn't there? Yeah, I think you're right, and I think it's probably more commonplace um, uh, from farming families just because it's such a generational thing. And these days, I think my grandfather pulled my dad and his brothers out of school to help in the in the family business, and they they may have wanted to go out and do something else um, that they were um, passionate about. But um, that's where the rule rule really came in for our family. That um, uh, by uh, I don't want to say pushing your kids out, but encouraging them to go and do something else for a few years, it really makes them uh, yearn and fall in love with where they've grown up and where their family is and, that, that, and the patch of dirt. Absolutely. and and But it is also risky because they might fall in love with somewhere else. But luckily for you, that's not the case. Um, so you travelled around Europe. Did What did you do in your, in your travels around Europe uh, other than, I don't know, were you backpacking or were you staying somewhere nice? <laughs> um, no, it was certainly backpacking, working in, uh, like a lot of Aussies do, working in a pub in London for a while and landscape gardening during day in, the day in London. Um, and then went from there and worked on boats uh, in France and Italy and Spain, um, big sort of super yachts, scrubbing decks um, and entertaining guests and looking after the upkeep of the boats. Uh, and then when I was working in um, uh, some family friends in Bordeaux, their daughter worked uh, for us for vintage years ago and heard that I was floating around and invited me to, to stay with them and do vintage with their um, business. And then I, I realised that wine was actually a really cool thing to, to work with and get into. So that's when I applied for Adelaide Uni, the winemaking course over in Adelaide, and um, moved from Europe 
back over to Adelaide and did the four years there. Amazing. And do you remember kind of even on those super yachts, I mean, what an experience being able to travel. I know that you said you're scrubbing decks, but did you notice that, you know, I don't know, the clients and things like that had an interest in wine? Did that kind of come up along the way as well? Yeah, it certainly came up and the clients had uh, some clients had an interest in wine. Some just drank wine um, because it was around and they, they don't scrimp on wine um, <laughs> over there. Uh, so, yeah, there was certainly an interest, but I, I always had my eye on what they were drinking and why they were drinking it and things like that. But to really just working in um, European wine regions was, is, was the, um, uh, I guess, the instigator or the, what mm. sealed the deal for me to uh, follow that passion. Oh, and we're so glad that you did. So you finished your degree in on. I can't even say that word today. Sorry, my apologies. You fin- I'm just going to say wine. You finished <laughs> your degree in wine at University of Adelaide and then you got a job at the Bridgewater Mill, which is one of my favourite spots. What, yeah. what were you doing there? So I was working up at Bridgewater Mill in, um, in the Adelaide Hills there on weekends uh, whilst I was studying uh, winemaking. Uh, just in the in the cellar door, basically, um, and and learning about the wine. So, um, Bridgewater Mill was part of Petaluma uh, Brands, and the Bridgewater Mill had beautiful wines uh, f- from Clare Valley Riesling um, right down to Rat and Bully Cabernet, and and amongst others. Um, so it was really good to get that hospitality experience, and also the, uh, another uh, another wine style and winemaker's style as well. Yeah, and, and, I mean, God, such an iconic building in, in the hills as well, so such a beautiful spot to, to be. Um, and then you moved over to, to Margaret River, of all places. What pulled you over there? Um, so as part of our fourth and final year at Adelaide Uni, we uh, required to do a vintage somewhere. So for the, for the um, first few months of the fourth year, we can choose where we want to go and we go and find ourselves a job in a winery. And uh, I hadn't been to Western Australia or Margaret River before, so I applied for a job at Mosswood over in Margs and um, and worked in the cellar there for um, vintage, which was two thousand and six for a memory. Um, yeah, and that was a beautiful region and great wines, and got some really good experience there as well. Oh, that was a cha- more of a challenging year, wasn't it? Two thousand and six for them. It was. Yeah, it was a bit of rain came through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a wild vintage. For the on the on the flip side, when the um, grapes weren't ready or the weather wasn't great, then the winemaker would tell us we could all go for a surf for the day. So um, it was a, a great region and, and really good experience, even if the vintage wasn't a, a belter. I feel like you've timed everything very well because you've had lots of outdoor things in amongst your travels. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a little sad when, when vintage isn't going according to plan, but being able to just go for a surf in Margs is not the worst uh, second. <laughs> so what, what did you find in terms of, you know, your experience in Margaret River and what were you thinking about perhaps, you know, if you were returning back to kind of Rutherglen way, you know, at making wine there. Did you did you feel that you could learn something from the experience of, of that region or did you think, you know, it's great to learn Cabernet and, and Chard and, and stuff here, but what am I going to do when I get to Rutherglen? 
Yeah, for sure. So the the, uh, the first the first most obvious one is the maritime climate over in Marg. So they they have those cool breezes off the ocean during the night, which really cools the place down. Um, but still have uh, warm days, probably mild days. I'd I'd, I'd call them um, when the sun is out. So really nice, usually fairly. Um, uh, tame climate during vintage uh but as far as cabernet and chardonnay go we i was i knew that i was going to move to rutherglen um when i'd finished my studies and i really was trying to find out why rutherglen hadn't been hanging its hat on table wines um we all know and love the fortified wines and have done for for um, over 100 years, but um, we have such a beautiful climate here that I couldn't see of a reason why we can't make a great Cabernet or a great Chardonnay here as well, just with our beautiful climate, albeit different. Um, Mm. We do have cooler nights in in the uh, harvest period, and we certainly have uh, our fair share of hot days, but there's also years like this year where we have beautiful, um, non-extreme, fairly temperate harvests. Yeah, and that really showcases in some of the varieties that you grow as well in that their expression really does reflect those kind of cooler nights and so, um, you know, really valid to, to be producing some great Shiraz and some great Durif and, some, like you said, great Cabernet as well out there. Um, how did your return back to the family and and the family estate all come about? How did that All Saints come about? Um, so my final year of uni over in Adelaide, um, our dad uh, was killed in a in an accident, a road accident, and my two sisters and I sat down and discussed what we wanted and what we should do. And there were basically three choices: we get someone in to run the place, or we sell up, or we give it a crack ourselves. So um, we all decided that we should give it a, a, a crack. Or being young and fairly naive, thought, how hard can that be? Um, but in in our uh, we had some youthful wisdom in that we decided to to um, divide up the roles. So Eliza, my older sister, being the oldest, she took on um, a lot of what Dad was doing, so finance and and um, wine club and that sort of thing. And my middle sister Angela took on sales and marketing. And then um, with my sort of new experience, I guess, I went I went into the vineyard, but uh, was focused on um, vineyard and winemaking and that sort of thing. So we had clear roles and position descriptions, and we set up set up a little board that we each reported to um, every couple of months to just to keep things all above board. Well, that sounds like it was very logical and uh, <laughs> very sensible of you all. <laughs> No fights along the way between siblings. Did you, was the conversation, I imagine, and I'm so sorry to hear about your dad's accident, but was the conversation a little bit about what you thought perhaps he would have wanted of, of all of you? Yeah, so yeah, it was. Um, Dad never pushed us into um, uh, coming to work here or what uh, stream of the business we should go into, but I think um, by osmosis he sort of it somehow drip-fed us over years Um the, the the better bits of the wine industry and just and get gauged what piqued our interest. Um, so we we, we kind of naturally, with that osmosis as well, um, steered ourselves into those areas of of where we we're most most passionate about. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, I think uh, we probably chose those uh, areas for for one another. 
um, by what dad might have thought we could do or handle. Um, but we're all still doing those roles now to a certain degree, which um, uh, we must have made the right decision along the way. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's no mean feat to have a successful business and to run it with family. So already I think you're way ahead of the game. I wanted to ask just a question, if you're okay, about Peter Brown, uh, your yep. father. What was he like? I mean, he was one of the first, well, the original um, brothers of Brown Brothers of Millowa, and, and they just have such a long history in, in Australia. But what was your father like as a personality? <laughs> um. <clears throat> he was a man of few words, um, but the words that he did speak, people usually listened. Um, and he was he was very inquisitive. He wanted to know the whys and the hows of everything, whether it be um, wine or viticulture, uh, sales. Um, on the weekends, he'd pull a bulldozer apart and put it back together just because of his interest. <laughs> um, he was a man of dreams. He loved... Uh, uh, thinking outside the box, he he was wanting to put wine in cans about 30 years ago. Um, and he was a pilot, uh, flew a little plane around on the weekends. Um, he was, yeah, a bit of a unicorn, but um, unfortunately it's not until someone passes that you often hear the, the really nice stories about them. So we still get people coming to Celador and our wine club events telling us little stories about Dad. Um, over their journey of knowing him mm. back in the day, which is really nice to hear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he was he was a a, um, a, a good human. I think that it, yeah, it's it, it is funny that you do hear those stories later, but at, at the same time, it's a bit like you know finding out more information over time just keeps that the mystery and the the, the personality and the the soul of that person just forever present and I think that it's lovely especially for for you to for have people to come in and and to find out a little bit more that um pieces together the the mystery of the man I suppose <laughs> yeah it is nice yeah yeah it continues it lives on definitely now you've got some incredible antique vines that you have in the in at All Saints Estate um some Shiraz that dates back to the 1920s, some Marsan, which I'm fascinated about. What's your approach when you kind of are making wines from these old, I imagine pretty gnarly looking vines now in today, today's day and age? Uh, they are they are gnarly and they're very cool. Uh, yeah, as you said, the sh- uh, one block of Shiraz here was planted in 1920 um, and a block of musket in the same year. And the Marsan was planted in 1959. Um, and they're, they're beautiful old vines and they're all hand-picked and they used to be trained up a, a stake so um, prior to trellises being around. But when I'm making wine from those blocks, I really try not to do too much um, uh, wine-making, I guess I can say. Mm-hmm. It's, you want to let the personality of the, the vineyard block speak rather than put a winemaker's stamp on it. So the, the Marsan um, vines are very low-yielding because of their age and uh, they have a really beautiful aromatics and texture to the wine, which I, I certainly try to uh, do nothing to meddle with that. I just want to carry that through the book, through to the finished whining bottle. And the Shiraz um, is the same. It's uh, an accountant's nightmare because the, 
the block of Shiraz. The vines only produce about four bunches per vine. Mm-hmm. So um, if the accountant had their way, that we would have bulldozed that about 50 years ago <laughs> because the yield's so low. But from a winemaking perspective, they're just it makes a beautiful, concentrated, rich, interesting wine. Yeah, I, and it's a shame, isn't it, that that it doesn't always make sense on a on a numbers basis, but it sometimes can be the heart and soul or the the, the wine that makes you um, giddy uh, with uh, pleasure when you when you can produce them. So I'm very glad that you fought against that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And you've also got um, you've had some really great ratings from James Halliday on on your Jarif and of course your fortified wines. We haven't yeah. ever spoken, I think, on this podcast about Jarif. Do you want to talk a little bit about how it behaves or or what you know the style of wine? Because I think it, you know, I I certainly appreciate it because it has such a long history and I think it's a really unique wine and I think it has um, such a strong uh, following in the marketplace. Perhaps a bit, you know, a small following. Um, so tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are on Jarif. So Jarif is um, Jarif's parents were uh, Shiraz or Sarah and Pelosin, spelt P-E-L-O-U-R-S-I-N. And um, there was a, a botanist at the University of Montpellier uh, over a hundred years ago, and he crossed those two varieties to make a new one and named it after himself. His name was Dr. Francois Jarif. So um, after Phylloxera came through, uh, Victoria, one of the Victorian viticulturists, was sent over to France to find some varieties that um, could be replanted and would grow well around the Victorian regions. And that viticulturist, um, Castella, I think his name was, he one of the varieties he brought back was Jarif, and it was planted in Rutherglen. And it was Jarif was made in Rutherglen into port for quite a few years because Jarif is quite high in tannin naturally. Um, in America and also um, South Africa, I believe they call it Petite Syrah. So it's the same variety, but we call it Jarif and they call it Petite Syrah because the bunches look like small Shiraz bunches on the vine, and the berries are quite small. And because the berries are small and the tannin is in the um, a lot of tannins in the skins, it means there's a higher ratio of tannin in the skin to juice juice in the pulp. So that made um, uh, winemaking with Jarif into port uh, uh, an obvious choice. But as um, tastes have changed, we have started to make, well, most of the uh, Jarif in Rutherglen now is made into table wine, so it's a, a, a straight red wine. Um, and up until about the 1990s, it was made into an absolute beast of a wine by a lot of the wineries, so really big, uh, rich, high alcohol, high tannin, um, a wine that was just... Uh, in excess of everything. Um, but in more recent years, with the younger generations coming through, particularly uh, of, of the different wineries around here, we're fashioning the wine into a softer, more approachable style. Um, it's still unashamedly uh, huge in colour, really deep red colour, and still has plenty of tannin, but we're not trying to extract, over-extract the variety to make, make it as big as we can. We're trying to make it approachable to younger generations of uh, wine drinkers. So it's a, it's, as you said, it's a, it's more of a niche, uh, smaller market for Jarif, but uh, it's it's really exciting when we get out and pour the wines, the new age Jarifs for sommeliers and younger generation at um, Celador that haven't tasted it before and, and seeing their eyes light up, particularly in the in the cooler months. Yeah, I, I found it um, not a challenge, but a kind of. 
Oh, maybe a challenge, maybe a like a something that I wanted to take on a little bit um, in in my career because I I really enjoyed the progression of what I saw of Jurif over time, and I still I still remember it from you know my first times of working in a in a retail store and trying those big inky alcoholic numbers, um, and I still think there's a place for that style, but I really enjoy where it sits today with nicer acidity and and like you said, there's some really nice kind of grainy tannins to it, but um, you know maybe not so extracted as well. But I, you know we in the in the wine world we talk about Valpolicella and we talk about Amarones or we talk about these wines and I think you know Durif has a place and it's it can be really delicious wine like it, um, it's a shame that it's um that I don't see it more often so I kind of thought you know I'm going to make it a bit of a bit of a thing for me that I'm going to harp on about Durif when I can <laughs> <laughs> yeah good thank you yes there's certainly certainly uh, many styles still so it's it's a, it's a fun variety to search out and and uh, start to understand the different styles and how they're made. Yeah. What What is the the greatest part of your job and making wine in, in Rutherglen and, and what's the, probably the biggest challenge as, as well of of making wine in the region? Oh, um, having, well, Australia in general, having no very, well, not very strict rules around what we can plant and where and when, and uh, when we harvest, we can harvest whenever we like. So um, we're very uh, open for adaptation and change. And Rutherglen has such beautiful weather usually um, that it can be, it's usually on our side to be able to experiment with different varieties and different uh, Bome levels and, um, and also introducing younger the next next generation of wine drinkers to our wines um now that the styles are changing as well uh and also can't forget the fortifieds uh, as i mentioned earlier they're beautiful old fortifieds we have stock in barrel here over 100 years old so being the caretaker of such beautiful wines that um past wine making generations have put a lot of time into and i'm caretaking i'm the caretaker for them now it's um it's a, a great responsibility um the biggest uh, challenge, I guess, is showing people that we don't just make beautiful fortifieds, but um, we can make amazing table wines as well. So uh, all the wineries in Rutherglen uh, make table wines now, and it, it's uh, almost impossible to find one that you don't want to have go back for a second, third glass. So we've really made a lot of progress, and um, showing people the region and what we can what we can grow and make up here is is really exciting. Yeah, I've I've actually even said to some of my family members, drive up for the fortifieds and stay for the table wines because I think that it gets them out there, but then they're almost pleasantly surprised. Oh, they make some really great wine out here. And I always kind of roll my eyes in the background like, yes, I have mentioned that once or twice. <laughs> Spread the good word. Thank you. Absolutely. And now I hear that you guys are doing um, a pretty amazing uh, museum release, which is coming up in June sometime. It's pretty rare these days to be able to sit on on some great museum stock because of the demand in market, um, because greedy Somme's always trying to get their mitts on back vintages. So how has that come about? And it looks like you've got some really special wines that you're going to release to the market, which is incredibly exciting. It is exciting. We've been, uh, my sisters and I, we've been putting um, wines down into what we call a family cellar, an underground cellar for 
uh, over 15 years now, 15, 20 years, and um, the time has come to, to open the, 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 throw the family cellar doors open and um, give customers the opportunity to buy some and, and appreciate them as well. So we went, we did a big tasting uh, fairly recently and things like 2009 family cellar Marsan um, is drinking beautifully. Um, as you would know, Marsan develops so gracefully in the bottle it um, morphs into these honeyed and marmalade characters over mm. time, um, which is just delicious. And we have um, some wines from 2008, particularly the reds. Uh, that was a, a drought year, so a really low-yielding, concentrated, um, aromatic, beautiful reds. Uh, and 2013 was a belter as well. So yeah, it's really exciting to, to have a look at those wines and then um, offer them up for customers' enjoyment too. Absolutely. And knowing that they've been looked after, you know, in your cellars, there's no that question of, you know, where did they come from and have they been sitting in a hot room under someone's dodgy bed for a long time before I, you know, spend the money on them. But I think that's so exciting. And, and like, yeah, I'm such a big Marsan fan. I don't get to see them very often and they just they just morph into these really complex and um, otherworldly flavors that are so exciting so good on you for having or, your, or to your whole family for having the patience to do that and to uh, be able to treat other people other than just your family to those <laughs> I really really looking forward to that release and Nick I tend to ask everybody about just a little insight into you if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life what would they be and why oh wow I know um, I know sorry <laughs> Uh, three beverages have to be one would have to be a, a great gin and tonic. Mm. Um, it's uh, it's in the warmer months. That's my go-to sort of knockoff uh, drink of choice. Um, and then it'd have to be a um, beautiful GSM mm. or Cabernet blend, and uh, finally a, an old Rutherglen musket. I'm so glad you said that because I'd be upset <laughs> if you didn't. <laughs> and you'd go musket of of all the fortifieds, and you'd choose a musket. Yeah, I'd have to. It's, it's a toss up between musket and muscadel. Muscadel, mm. which we used to call toke, but um, uh, yeah, I think musket. Musket's my style. Mm, I flip flop between the two, and I understand why because you know musket those red berry flavors that you can get, and oh, they're just so delicious. But their muscadel's got you know all those beautiful kind of toffee aromatics. Oh, they're so delicious! So hard, hard to to have to pick one. I'm impressed that you're so decisive. <laughs> Well, Nick, it's been so nice to get to know a little bit more about you and especially about All Saints Estate. Um, I'm looking forward to that museum release and I'm going to be watching to see what comes up. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. And, and like I said, you know, the Rutherglen is such a special place in, in our Australian history, a beautiful part of the world, and I always encourage people to go out there. It's not as far as you think, um, and it is worth the drive. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time and see you up here soon. Can't wait. Thanks a lot, Nick. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.